David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And we're back together again. The gang is all back together here on Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing George Orwell's 1984. Heidi, you were gone last week. You were not part of the discussions on a scale of as depressing as this book to not depressing at all. How was the experience of your, your, your trip away? Oh, my trip away was way, way on the other side of depressing. It was really great. In fact, <laughs> I uh, was at a monastery with my daughter in Arizona for spring break, which doesn't sound like a wild party, but it was really lovely. Just really, really wonderful pilgrimage. And um, I was there standing in line uh, at church and a, I saw a friend of Close Reads, Tomaida. Uh, who many oh, of our yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. know. Yeah, she was in line at the same church, just at this monastery in Arizona. She has friends who live nearby. Lucy and I were on a pilgrimage. She lives, she's actually, uh, she she's from Seattle. She's been living in Houston. And I saw her in rural Arizona and I live in Colorado. It was just really wild and wonderful. And there's close readers everywhere just pursuing the good, true and beautiful. So it was quite a serendipitous and cool experience. Tamaida went to last year's first ever Close Reads retreat in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. And we kind of all went around and shared our stories, like how did we end up in this place? And a lot of people had been Close Reads fans for a while. And am I right in saying Tamaida had never listened to the podcast? She just loved Wendell Berry, the subject of our retreat. And she saw an, an ad or a mention of it online somewhere. And she was like, I'm going. I'm going to North Carolina to hang out with a bunch of strangers. And she was terrific. We were all felt really fortunate to have her just kind of by happenstance, see a mention of Wendell, a Wendell barrier tree. Shout out to, um, to her love of, uh, pencils. Yeah. She's a fellow pencil enthusiast. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, um, I'm sure that there is some kind of subway that could be brought up here in terms of pencil enthusiasm, but I'm at a loss for it right now. So I'm just going to say, we are here to discuss the ending of 1984, George Orwell's 1984. As I said, next week, of course, we will answer your questions. So if you would like to submit a question, Heidi, would you like to be in charge of starting the thread on Facebook? I would like that very much. If you So if you would like to ask a question on the Facebook page, you can head over there and you can post your question on that thread. You can also email them to me. It's david at goldberrybooks.com. And then there's a third option over on our Substack at close reads HQ, closereads.substack.com, where we post the episode. You can leave a comment uh, there as well in the comment under in, in, in like the comment box underneath the post. So you have three different options for where you can leave a comment or a question about 1984. Tim. David, anything you want to plug before we dive into this conversation? I have several things, but I'm going to wait for a week. I do want to plug. Okay. I'll I'll plug that we are going to read A Raisin in the Sun in two Mm -hmm. weeks. So after Mm -hmm. the Q&A episode, if people get an opportunity to watch A Raisin in the Sun, specifically the one with Sidney Poitier in the next two weeks, we highly recommend it. Highly, Great. highly recommended. It. it is a good, good, good tip. Superb movie. Um, also, if you're interested, if you really like this play, there is a new biography of Lorraine Hansberry out this year, um, which is pretty good. So that's another 
interested if you if you're enjoying the play if you've started reading it or once you get going you're interested in that this is my uh good bookseller's good deed of the day to let you know that there is a, <laughs> a new biography of Lorraine Hansberry okay 1984 Heidi the end of this book we were just talking we were just yeah we were just (laughs) talking about how it's kind of depressing a fairy tale ending i believe i believe tim said oh this book is so depressing Mm. um before we were on the air um we talked a little bit in a previous episode about what this book is about so now that we've gotten to the end i want to revisit that very sort of simple you know high level question and see whether our thoughts have changed on that so I'd love to hear from each of you. Like if, if you had to say in one or two sentences, having read this book again, having gotten to the ending, having endured the fairy tale ending, what is this book about? Heidi, how would you pin that down? I I do think that it is exactly what Tim said a couple of weeks ago, that it is about the impact of, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So please correct me if I get this wrong, Tim. The impact of a repressive regime on the human on the human. I think that's, yeah. Wait, you were going to say more, Heidi. No, I'm actually done that on the human period. I was going to say mind Mm -hmm. or spirit or something, but it's way more that it's all encompassing. It's on, uh, on, on, on the individual human. And I don't even want to say on humanity collectively. I want to say on the individual. What do you uh, go on? What do you mean? Um, I think I'm pretty insistent on that because the opposing viewpoint that's presented by O'Brien is that there's no such thing as the individual, that everybody is a collective. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's a lie. And um, this is one, one great question that was brought up. I don't know if you all talked about this last week uh, by Katie Patton um, on the Facebook page was she said, why is this a novel? Why couldn't this be? Some, a piece of nonfiction exploring the totalitarian uh, regime, and yeah, we kind of talked about that. Part of the reason of uh, that that a novel is particularly effective is that a novel is necessarily personal. A novel is about a person. Mm. It's about characters. It's about the individual. Um, and uh, anytime you zoom out and write, say, a newspaper article or a nonfiction book, um, there's you, you become, then you start thinking about this in terms of ideology, whether or not I believe in this political system, right? And what a novel does is it forces you or forces us as the readers to grapple uh, through, to grapple with these questions uh, through the eyes of an individual self, which is Winston. Um, and so I don't, I think that this is a novel, not about what totalitarian regimes do to humanity in general, but what they do to to the self, to an individual. Hmm. Tim, has your perspective on these themes changed having finished it once again? No, I think it's, I think it's the same. I think one of the things that stuck out to me at the end is actually with the aid of this essay at the end of my book by Eric Fromm, uh, uh, a sociologist in the later part of the 20th century. He was a a Jew who fled Nazi Germany and came to the U S and he's one of the real outstanding sociologists of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, And he made this point that 
there are that the 20th century has a few really prominent anti-utopias. 1984 is the best known one. The other two that he mentions a book um, called We, I think by a, a Polish or a Russian author whose name I cannot remember, and the other being Brave New World. All three of them are anti-utopias. And one of the things that he points out is that all three of them are kind of experimenting with the idea of how malleable um, human nature is. And all three, and, and basically all three of them ask, can the human drive for freedom and integrity be so overwhelmed by external forces that they become obliterated. And Fromm points out that all three authors would say there is a kind of like a fixed human nature. They don't have a kind of um, real loose kind of a postmodern vision of that the human being is just very fluid. Now they're like, no, there's like a, there's a human nature and it's, it's pretty tough to eradicate. And yet all three of these authors kind of come down on the side of, but if the circumstances conspire and you live in a state like the state of 1984, we think you could actually eradicate those drives from human nature, the drive from, from of like liberty and integrity. And you see at the end of this book, Winston's drive for integrity. No, two plus two equals four. No, there is like a real history that existed. You know, no, I love Julia. By the end of the book, those things are gone. And what has replaced them? Love of big brother. So it's a very, that part of it, the kind of um, eradicability of human nature, I think, kind of sparked for me hitting the end of this book. So one of the things that Fromm mentions is George Orwell's 1984 is the expression of a mood and it is a warning. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how <clears throat> this is a depressing book. But one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by is whether a book that is, can be, whether something is depressing and also hopeless. So when you get to the end of this book, is this hopeless? I talk about this a lot with friends. We get together often, like once a week and we watch movies. We have varying degrees of, I don't know what's the word, uh, preference for movies that end with what you would call like obvious hopeful situations where, mm. you know, some of us have more, um, more of a taste for like, the notion of stasis at the end where you're not sure exactly what's going to happen to a character or maybe it ends with like, you know, like vertigo. We just watched vertigo recently. Yeah. And that yeah. movie ends for those who haven't seen it. It went like just a crazy way. And half the, some of the guys are like, wait, what just happened? That seems like completely hopeless. It's just bleak. So when you get to the end of a book like this, where he says that he is, you know, he loves big brother. Now does, although it's depressing and, or, or, or perhaps the better way of saying it is given that we had sort of, agree that it's depressing and, and bleak. Does it also mean that this is a hopeless book? How, how do you read uh, it from that perspective, Heidi? 
I don't think it's hopeless. Uh, I think that it is for sure a cautionary tale and a warning, uh, both politically and I don't know, personally on the individual level. Uh, but I don't think that it's hopeless. I think probably partly one reason why it's not hopeless is because nothing like this has ever been successfully done, although it's been attempted, right? It's particularly in, in Russia, it's been attempted, but it's never been successful. And so when Winston says to O'Brien, you'll never, you'll win. never win. I think the book leaves open that he's telling the truth, that that is actually true. And that it's O'Brien who's lying and, um, and, and, and deceived himself. So I, I don't think it's hopeless, uh, but I don't, I think you have to look pretty hard to find the hope and you have to have a, a strong sense, the love of freedom yourself. But the, the world is so bleak. The world that's presented in 1984 is so profoundly bleak uh, that it, it does seem, in my opinion, extreme. I mean, it's obviously extreme, but like the, the repression is so complete and nothing like that has ever happened in human history. And, and so there is this sense of it. It feels like an imaginary world. Although I know that we can, we can see certain similarities in our own culture and other cultures in the past or whatever, uh, but it still feels like an unreal world. And in that sense, it doesn't seem hopeless to me. What do you think, Tim? I think it's hopeful first because it's a prophetic critique and any sort of prophetic critique begins with the notion that things should be different, you know? So even in offering a critique, there's some hope. Not offering a critique is in some ways just sort of saying what is, is, and I'm not going to mm -hmm. raise a voice to say anything yeah. about it. Um, that being said, I, I, what I want to know is if this is meant to kind of sound the warning, why does Orwell have Winston so completely tamed by the end? You know, why not have a flicker of hope? Mm. Why not have like memories of Julia why not have like lingering spite for big brother? Like why not just have like that sliver of it? And that, that part, it was, a. it's not, yeah. I don't want to say it's confusing. I just want to know why did Orwell do that? seems like that's where the cautionary tale part of it is, you know, like to make it, to maximize the, the cautionary elements of it. Like if we his, start going down this path, this is yeah, how bad it, it, it can it be. It has to be as bad as it can be, right? It has to yeah. be completely subsumed and like emaciated and then built up again as a different kind of person. Um, like a Because race. otherwise people could read it and they'll be like, yeah, the human instinct for freedom is just too strong. We don't really need to worry about this. Well, right. And because, and he, you know, as we just, you guys were just pointing out, he plants the seed that he, about 10 pages left, 15 pages left in the book, whatever it is, he, he plants that notion that maybe the human spirit can overcome in the end, right? There's that conversation. He says, we haven't read a lot from this book. Maybe I'll just try to read this. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have a page. Um, feebly without arguments with nothing to support him, except his inarticulate horror of what O'Brien had said, he returned to the attack. 
I, I don't know. I don't care. Somehow you will fail. Something will defeat you. Life will defeat you. We control life, Winston, at all its levels. You're imagining that there is something called human nature, which we will be outraged by what we do and will turn against us. But we create human nature. Men are infinitely malleable. Or perhaps you have returned to your old idea that the proletarians or the slaves will arise and overthrow us. Put it out of your mind. They're helpless like the animals. Humanity is the party. The others are outside. Irrelevant. I don't care. In the end, they'll beat you. Sooner or later, they'll see you for what you are, and then they will tear you to pieces. Do you see any evidence that this is happening or any reason why it should? No, I believe it. I know that you will fail. There is something in the universe. I don't know, some spirit, some principle that will ne you will never overcome. Do you believe in God, Winston? No. Then what is it, this principle that will defeat us? I don't know, the spirit of man. So then they go on a little bit there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so he, he, the book like brings that, that notion up, that the spirit of man, there's some kind of courage and pride and all that that's going to yeah, overcome yeah. that. And then in the end, eh. nope. But is it that question about God there that he, that, that ultimately the book kind of hovers on? That was, that's what I was thinking about. Like maybe the spirit of man can't overcome, but then he mm -hmm. says, you believe in God and Winston says no. And then is it because he doesn't believe in God that the book is saying you can't overcome? Like, I'm not asking us to like mm -hmm. get right. into Orwell's views on theology, but how does that play into it? Heidi, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's important. Um, I, I've been sitting here kind of sifting through why I don't think this book is hopeless because why isn't it hopeless? <laughs> but I think there's a couple of things. One is that as O'Brien is constantly sifting through the mind of his victim to find evidence of some kind of um, attachment to something beyond the party. And, and thus, because of that, there is a sense in the book that those things are dangerous. And actually, if a person were to be able to cling to them and believe in them and endure the suffering, that, that, that those things would bring hope. And I think that Orwell's spot on in diagnosing what those resistance points are. One is God, a belief in God. Uh, the other is love and loyalty to an individual human like he has for Julia. And that's what he eventually breaks in Winston, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then the other is the integrity of the human mind, uh, being able to think for, for oneself. Uh, and again, that's something he's able to violate in Winston. Uh, but the implication is if Winston were to be able to withstand Therefore, he, that, those things actually are stronger than the party. They are stronger than Big Brother. Uh, and it is suffering that breaks a person. Uh, and, but that suffering and, and if, if a person were to hold those things, then they would be inviolable um, and they would be able to truly resist. And I think the evidence that we have that there's still something within Winston that is truly human is his final memory of playing games with his mother. There is still a sense of memory and memory is the other thing that, and, and what I think Orwell, Orwell seems to say that memory is the most dangerous thing to the party whether it's a collective memory 
or whether it's individual memory. And I think well, the that's party true. Seems to say that too. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, that's, that's exactly right. And there is still memory in Winston. And so even though Winston is broken, even though he says two plus two is five, he still has memories of his mother. And that's something that can't, uh, that, that is still within him. Um, so yeah, I, I think Orwell leaves us some resistance points that are beaten out of Winston, but he seems to be saying through the book, these things still matter. These things are the threat to the party. It's interesting that you bring up memory. We talk, David and I talked about this last week, how crucial the idea of real history is to this book and how crucial it is to the party to obliterate real history in it, in it. Forgive me, it's gonna, this is going to sound like a tangent, but it reminds me of the end of The Brothers Karamazov, the Dostoevsky book. The, the very final scene is Alyosha, our hero, meeting with these young Russian boys who used to be kind of like the persecutors of this other Russian boy. They would make fun of him. Your father's a drunk. And then the boy gets sick and the, the boy who had been kind of like persecuted gets sick and on his deathbed, all these boys rally around him and they become like his dearest friends and they're crying over him and praying over him as he dies. And Alyosha gathers them together after the boy dies. And he says, remember throughout your life, remember that you were capable of great mercy and great friendship and great love so that when you do terrible things, which you're going to do, you can still remember, but once I did something that I know was pure and good and right. And that kind of recalling, um, it's like, you're never hopeless if you can recall that moment. And I think this book has a similar kind of vision of history. It's, it's not remember the hope of yesterday but it's remember that yesterday actually exists mm -hmm. and things are not as they were today. There was something different back then. And by having that, we know that the party is not the totality of existence, which is what O'Brien is arguing and like in kind of mandating that Winston believes that the party is everything. If the party says two plus two equals five, then the party is right. External reality, the laws of nature, history, all those things are subject to the party. Right. Well, and the amount of, I mean, there's such an emphasis on Winston's physical suffering in this section. It's not gratuitous. It's necessary. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to read, uh, but it's, it's part of Orwell's point that the amount, the sheer amount and time of, of torturing this person is what is required in order to break him, right? Mm. And that's an unrealistic expectation of the world that I, like I said, this, as I was reading, I was thinking this, this feels so unreal. Like I get, I get, I really do understand the idea of like news, the changing of language, all these kind of things that we, we see in our culture, I've seen in cultures past that have, 
uh, a totalitarian control over human existence uh, that that Orwell is bringing to the surface here in 1984. I understand that that has happened, is happening, blah, blah, blah. However, nothing like this has ever existed. And it seems very, very unlikely that anything this repressive actually could happen, except in hell. And, and that is, to me, that isn't hopeless then, right? Because the amount of time that they're taking, the amount of energy that they're spending on stamping out the humanity of just one man who's merely a cog in the machine, is that a realistic expectation for the whole world? I think that it isn't. I would posit that it isn't. And therefore, there is hope. Because of how much effort it takes to get rid of the memories of this man to, to make him say two plus two is five. Like, do are there enough O'Briens, enough hellish demonic beings in the world to do that to all five billion, seven billion people in order to get us to the point that we'll accept Big Brother? I it's just not there. And so I think that there is some hope there and that the amount of suffering that it would take to get somebody to that broken state is an unrealistic unreal world it is an unreal city as t.s Eliot says i think orwell would say something like heidi i don't need they don't need to control all five billion people they need to control that sliver of society who like winston dare to be uncomfortable sure. and dare to you know but i think your point still holds like okay that sliver of society the amount of effort required to completely sublimate their humanity. I don't know that it's worth like, just like the cost analysis on this. I don't know that it actually works too much time and effort would go into obliterating the mind of Julia and well, really Winston, right? That is it really worth the party's time? Uh, maybe just give them a little bit of freedom and we just don't have to completely obliterate that sliver of society. The thing that makes it work though, the the book, I guess, is that it's just adjacent enough to reality to be threatening. Agreed. Because, you know, like you can look at every, you like there's articles and essays and stuff that like break down every allusion to something real that Orwell was you they, he was combining into one power mm. so like some of it's from japan in the 30s some of it's from the soviets some of, it, some of it's from the nazis like he takes all these things that he had studied and learned uh some of it was even from ancient times and he takes it and puts it all into one superpower so what we don't what we've never had and probably never will have is the capacity to do all of these things at one time in a way that like rewrites human the human psyche but they're all just enough real just real enough, just references to things that actually happened to, to, to be a warning, to be threatening. Right. And then like our experiences as readers can be, it's, we recognize just enough of reality as readers for it to be a cautionary tale, for it to have mm -hmm. the drama that it needs to have. You know, I, we talked last week about how one of the things for me, it's like tech, the way we rely on technology predisposes us to be controlled in certain ways. Right. So there's, you know, and people that lived in 1940s after the war, like there's just, there's just enough of true experience to make the book feel threatening. Mm. So I think mm -hmm. it, otherwise, otherwise it wouldn't work. Like right. it, it can be both like 
like almost like a myth, but like a, there's there's still like this this like uh, sliver of truth in the myth, right? And I know I'm not I'm using the term myth loosely. It's got it like right. there's like a mythology almost about right. it. I agree, <laughs> but David. Then, I oh go ahead, go ahead, finish. No, 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 go ahead. I was saying I agree. I think that what you're saying is really important. That it is a cautionary tale. It is an unreal city. Uh, and therefore we have hope, right? And I think that that goes to the idea of whether or not the book, the question of whether or not the book is hopeless. At the end of this book, I don't feel like we're doomed. I just feel like, oh, we have to, we have to maintain our humanity. We have to believe in God. We have to remember, we have to have human attachments. We have like, you know, these are, it, it, it motivates me rather than making me feel like this is this relentless march of totalitarianism is coming at me. Instead, I feel motivated to maintain resistance against that. Um, so I agree with you. I think, I think that's true. Is that how you feel, Tim? Like how, how yeah. do you feel personally? Yeah, yeah I do. Um, I mean, as I've stated throughout this show, I'm a little, I'm less worried about totalitarianism um, the threat of it in the United States. Like I totally get we're a large bureaucratic, we have a large centralized bureaucratic government. And with that reality always comes the kind of like um, appealing terror of a totalitarian state that like we're constantly like in fear of drifting into that. I absolutely get that. Um, and, and so I am also like worried about that. Like, I don't want us to kind of like <laughs> having, having just signed to purchase a house and the novel that I had to sign in, I mean, like, like the hundreds of signatures that I had to sign yeah. in order to purchase this house makes me like, reminds me of like creeping bureaucracy is a real thing. It's an absolutely real thing. Um, and is, is this the closet that, that you're in right now? Yeah, the closet that I'm in is the you, house. You are in, in the, the there's condo. a literal closet. closet. Let's be bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, there's a literal right. closet that you're in right now, and there's a metaphorical one, but not the usual metaphor. <laughs> right. We're redefining <laughs> the metaphor. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Tim's literally in a closet. I'm just asking. Are you, yes. are you literally in the closet of the new home you bought? I am. I literally am. Mm -hmm. I'm not metaphorically in the closet. <laughs> Where was I? I don't Where even was I? Know. I was. I am. You're talking about the. You're not worried about the. State. I don't you're not worried feel, about the creeping bureaucracy be, becoming a becoming big brother. Yeah. yeah, you're not worried yeah, I just that think, we're becoming big brother. I I don't I don't think we're really close to that right now. I think that if we were going to write a modern anti-topia. Um, I would, it would be of a different sort. I've made that point. I don't, I don't need to believe yeah, it. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, I, I, it's like, I actually it's hopeful, like pay attention, pay attention. Anytime you have, anytime you have a large bureaucratic state, pay attention. Can I ask you guys a question, make a confession at the same time? Yeah. Yes. And I'm really excited about this. It's not, it's not that exciting. Um, I hit a squirrel, squirrel with my car and didn't go back for it. Um, I... <laughs> what do you mean you didn't go back for it like like because you knew it was 
dead and I, there was no I, point in going I, back? I didn't go back and check and put it out of its suffering or, or give it the proper burial. I, I'm, I, it was just the first thing that came to mind. There'd be like a, a weird thing to confess on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something else though. Yeah, no, this is something else. Yeah. Or is it? Maybe we should work through. <laughs> I the, am like really lost in metaphor. this labyrinth right now and I need no. you to lead me out. Okay. <laughs> it's really not that interesting. But I want to confess that along with, I think, some of our readers who I feel the, the uh, not the responsibility, but perhaps the opportunity to hide behind, <laughs> I, I have, I must confess, I was kind of bored. Mm. Once that we hit chapter nine and 10 of part two, it really took me out of the story. And mm. we talked about, uh, you know, I kind of had this, was complaining that I didn't feel like the drama of the story could hold up to the ideas of the story in terms of it being a novel. It was weird because I kept thinking, well, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, I would think, well, that sounds like a terrible thing to go through. But it, was, it, it wasn't, for me, like, I wasn't finding it truly, genuinely compelling as a novel. Mm. So I need to go through some novel therapy now. And mm-hmm. I need you two as my counselors who I, for who I am paying very little to, uh, <laughs> to lead me, to help me out here, either to help me feel better about myself or, and to accept this condition that I'm in or to offer me some solutions and show me the error of my ways. So again, I don't, I'm not saying this is a bad book. I'm also not saying that it's not compelling. It's not full of compelling ideas and some nice sentences, all of that for the sake of conversation. Let's not debate that. Yeah. But I felt like staring it down as a novel, like trying to experience it from that perspective as a storytelling, as a, as a story, it wasn't holding my attention and it wasn't those ideas weren't stacking up in a way that made me want to keep going. I don't know if it's because I didn't, I I wanted to be reading a novel with some action. And then I would say this is not a novel that has a lot of action. I'm not saying it needs to be a spy novel, just to be clear. So I've laid it out. I've confessed. Can I say this back to you, David, just to make sure that I understand the kind of... I was trying of to the, ramble there to give you guys a type of figure therapy, out something to say. <laughs> the yeah, type of ahead. therapy that you need is something like this. Um, hey, David, um, what did you come see David, uh, Heidi and I about? You know, you found us on a website and psychologytoday.com. Yeah. I Googled... And now here you are in our office. Literature therapists. Yep. And that what is the nature like of the problem? The best job ever. New job. Goals. It's kind of what we do. Literally, isn't what it? you do. Life goals. So, so the problem is, I understand it, David. Is that you think this is maybe an important book because it touches on such a like dark and scary and potent, you know, like aspect of history and threat to like everyday life. But the book itself just outside of that is mediocre and oftentimes boring. Is that, is that where, is that what we need to work on today? I found myself feeling and wondering (laughs) if this book outside of all that 
is perhaps mediocre and boring. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to come here and say George Orwell, who is a better writer than I ever will be, is mediocre, wrote a mediocre and boring right. book. Right. I'm trying to I'm trying to square the experience that I had with the important ideas that the book discusses with the reputation that the book has attained. Yeah. Those three right. things go together. I accept the ideas are important. I accept the book is thus important. And I accept that it has this reputation, but my experience, and I think is this is true of some of our listeners too, my experience reading it left me not wondering why it's important, but wondering why it has this reputation as a great yeah. novel. Yeah. Heidi, do you have, can you, between the two of you, can you solve my problems? I don't know. I don't know if I can, but I feel like this is a job interview and I'm going to give it a try. Um, hmm. The... I don't know that I've heard 1984 described as a great novel in terms of the form ever. Uh, every time that I've heard 1984 talked about, it is as a cautionary tale for totalitarian regimes, which is why a couple of weeks ago I said, I don't know if this would be considered a great novel without its historical context. It's a necessary novel, exactly what Tim just said and in, in what you said. It's important. I'm glad it's there. I found myself so uh, moved, particularly with the conversation about memory and language. Uh, with new speak versus speak that was so compelling to me um and and i uh and the importance of memory and that paperweight man that paperweight's like haunting to me i actually dreamed about the paperweight and so i think there's elements of of greatness of the ideas that come out in the literary form but i don't know that i disagree with you at all about about its potential weakness as a narrative. Um, I do think though, that, uh, what, what I thought of when you were talking about kind of this, um, there's not a lot of action. Like, I mean, my first thought was, I totally agree. And yet, and yet, how can it be that a book that is full of this much human suffering, torture, uh, it doesn't have enough action, right? Like, um, but it made me think of um, Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil. Um, she she was a, a, a philosopher writing about totalitarian regimes in nonfiction form. And she says that uh, everybody expects evil to be kind of this great crescendo of action. And essentially it's not, she says it's bureaucratic. Like it's bait, it's banal. Like she talked, she calls it the banality of evil. And, and I think this book captures that so perfectly that, that evil is bureaucratic. It's stripped of humanity, right? Again, and I've said this before on the show, in the Harry Potter novels, it's always Dolores Umbridge that's the most hated villain, not Voldemort, right? Voldemort's kind of exciting. He's very human. He has like strong emotions. You kind of feel sorry for him. He has like a a tragic backstory, right? Whereas Dolores Umbridge is so she's it's the banality of evil uh she has no humanity it's her very inhumanity that makes her so wicked and um and this this book captures that and i think if you're writing a book about people whose humanity has been either subjugated um or as tim said that word that I thought was really powerful, sublimated, like so 
so they've been so stripped of anything that makes them human, um, the victims, or if the perpetrators are, as they are in this book, just kind of bureaucratic cogs in the machine, either fanatics or bureaucrats, then they're not very human either. And I'm not sure you really can write a compelling narrative with a lot of human action about such an inhuman um, theme, but the theme is necessary. That's, that's what, that's, that's, that I think is what makes it important. It is ideas. It's not, but, but like you said, I don't know that I've ever heard it called the greatest novel Um, and stripped of its historical context. I think it's, it's, it's not. What if we said this, what if we said that, George Orwell's 1984 is not a great novel, but it is a great book. Could you get with that, David? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, but see, that's so tricky. I know, right? (laughs) Because if it claims to be a kind of form, that's really hard. And I, I like, this is one of those things where I don't like to be the person who like has to like I hesitate to be someone who's like claiming to have some sort of wisdom about a book that's last that's withstood 180 years or whatever. I think I would like my leaning right now is I'm just going to say it. I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and make myself like seem like I actually, it matters what I say. I think I would say that it's an important book more than it's a great book, no matter what form it is, because Mm. I think it's too in between forms. Yeah. Like I, I don't think it masters any given form. I actually think, man, I almost think if he had, if he had written it as a play or like somehow claimed some other form, it would, we would have experienced it differently. And that, I think the in-betweenness of it keeps it from being what I would call a great book, capital G, capital B, but I do think it's an important book, capital I, capital B. I think that's actually a better way of saying what I said. I agree. That's exactly what I was going to say. I don't know if it's great, but it's really important and necessary. I'm glad it was written. I think people should read it. The very fact that it exists, that it's out there, that it like its energy is in the ether, so to speak, is like mm-hmm, an important mm-hmm. fact about the universe. Yeah, um, which sounds like sort of mystical, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, but it, it's not like for me, it was not an unchallenging read. Not in the sense that like I didn't understand it, although there was long stretches where I was like, "What's he? What? What am I supposed to accept as true here? Like, who is saying things that Orwell actually believes to be the truth?" That's a little bit of a challenge, but. Every experience, every reader is going to have a different experience. And, you know, I thought there were a couple really big holes. As I walked away from the book, I thought, I still don't know why. I still don't Mm, know why they expended so many resources to break Winston when the whole first half of the book talks about how easy it was to make people disappear Mm. and erase them and from existence and memory. So I only, I, I was thinking about yeah. this. I have one theory that, that hold that I think could work. Are they doing this because they think that he has the capacity to be the next O'Brien and that that's, what's going to happen next. And that O'Brien had been him in a previous life. Ooh, that was the only, cause as I got to the end, I thought the only way to tie this up in a way that's really, I think, satisfying is to make Winston part of the inner party at the end. Um, and I think, that, yeah, I think that's what happened when he says that he loves big brother. Yeah. He just doesn't have enough privilege. They talk about how they marginalize him into that, like comma committee. 
Um, Maybe he has to work his way up. I mean, we're hypothesizing at this point. Yeah, exactly. And so I still, when I got to the end, I didn't remember, I didn't remember what happened to him at the end. Like, I, I mean, I remembered the main part that he'd been absorbed into Big Brother. And then I remembered the final line, but I didn't remember what his job was in the party. And I, I, I just, I don't think the book satisfactorily answers the question that it poses, which is, I understand how, but I don't know why. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair critique. And I do think like it would have been more compelling if we saw him ushered into the inner circle at the end, because then the labor, the kind of the party's efforts would have kind of like paid off. Right. Hey, we've got another high functioning cog in the machine. Right. Great work, O'Brien. If you can spend three days and eradicate an entire war from cultural and historical memory, it doesn't seem like the amount of resources are necessary to uh, uh, to rehabilitate these people and introduce them back into the party. It seems like they'd have the resources to just vaporize them and erase their memory. Um, yeah. So I, I unless they serve yeah. some other purpose, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I and right. I think that's a big enough flaw to be very compelling. Like it's not a small flaw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it dramatically have been more interesting to have him kind of like Mm -hmm. ushered into the inner chamber, there awaits Brian and some of his cohort, here's our newest recruit, his mind, you know, how do you feel about Big Brother? I love Big Brother, you know, and he says it with real vim and vigor. Yeah, I think that, that was a missed opportunity. What do you guys make of the, the idea he, you know, he's sitting there right before the last paragraph, the information about the war has come through. It says that the waiters in the cafe are turning back to their work. Um, He's sitting there. It says he's sitting there in a blissful dream. He paid no attention as his glass was filled up. He was not running or cheering any longer. He was back in the ministry of love with everything forgiven, his soul white as snow. He was in the public dock, confessing everything, implicating everybody. He was walking down the white tiled corridor with the feeling of walking in sunlight and an armed guard at his back. The long hoped bullet, the long hoped for bullet was entering his brain. And then the next paragraph, he gazed up at the enormous face. He had won the victory over himself. He loved big brother. So is the bullet, why is this paragraph here about the bullet immediately before this paragraph about how he has victory over himself and they've, he's been sublimated into big brother and he loves big brother and all that. What is the meaning of this, this, the long hope for a bullet? Mm-hmm. Well, O'Brien, I mean, on the plot level, O'Brien tells him we're going to kill you someday. We will find you. You will, we will shoot you. Um, and he longs for death. I think on a, on the thematic level, we have that idea of self annihilation as the the only hope for a person whose humanity has been so profoundly damaged. Um, and I, yeah, I. But I also think again, I think there were a couple holes because out. And once he's been released at that point, he could commit suicide. And maybe the point is 
they're so programmed at this point to, to, to respond only to the party that they wouldn't dare do it. But if he's fantasizing Mm. about it and we get so much insight into his, his inner life earlier when he is like what he's fantasizing about, he's fantasizing about Julia. He's remembering his mother. He's thinking about being outside in nature, which that part always has such pathos for me because I think so much of our humanity is reawakened and healed in the natural world. But, and that's what he would always dream of, right? Like being outside in the sunshine and the grass. Um, and now his fantasies have become merely death. The only thing he thinks about is death and that, but not, he doesn't even have enough self, uh, he doesn't even have enough self-motivation to kill himself. He's to wait for the party to do it. He doesn't even have control over his own death anymore. Suicide isn't even an option for him. Mm. He's just waiting for the party to do it. That's profoundly, that's, that's profound primal, you know, that's the death blow to the human spirit, which is what the, which is, which is what the nihilists always say, right? Like the ultimate power of a human being is suicide. Um, and that's a lie. That's a wicked lie from hell. Right. But, but even, even the nihilists say your power is suicide, but Winston Mm. can't say that anymore. The party has to kill me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's completely given over. Yeah. So we've been going for an hour, just shy of it. We're going to answer questions next week. So let's, let's turn to some final thoughts and then, uh, we'll let people sort of direct us next week when we answer the questions. Tim, do you have anything you want to add uh, regarding your experience with this book? Um, Questions that are left lingering for you? Anything else? Any theories that you didn't get a chance to throw out there? I think my final thought is um, that I think that we can claim this book succeeded. Hmm. I think if Orwell's job was, if he considered his job to be raising an alarm flag. I think that he has succeeded because, and like my evidence would be, consider the number of phrases in this book that have entered common parlance and and give us handles by which to discuss legitimate concerns about living in an over-bureaucratic, you know, leaning toward a totalitarian state. Even the title, 1984. It's like we're living in 1984 again. You know, what does that mean? It means like this like highly bureaucratized tech, like a totalitarian system where like we're always being spied upon. Um, Big Brother has also entered common parlance and, you know, like newspeak, double think, thought police. Mm -hmm. So I think all of these things allow us to, and this is what books do. They allow us to have shorthand, shorthanded means of reasoning together. When I say thought police, immediately we kind of know what each other means. And I think Orwell, that's my evidence for Orwell has been largely successful. I don't mean he's been successful. Look, There are no totalitarian regimes out there. There most certainly are. There most definitely are. But I do think that he has provided readers in the West a common common phrases by which to Mm. continue to sound the alarm. And like common questions 
common, yeah, and common questions. Yeah. Common, you know, notions and things like that, that we can, that like allow us to have the discussions. Mm-hmm. Right. Heidi, I, final I, thoughts. I agree. And I, I like to combine what, what Tim, what you just said with something you said earlier, David, that I think what Orwell has given us that will is, is really enduring and important is this collective language and mythology of totalitarianism. It's like an icon of the fallen nature of, yeah. of 20th century political experimentation. Um, and we need it. And, and in that sense, I think in spite to go back to the earlier conversation of whether or not it's a great novel, I think, no, I think that's safe to say, but I'm not so pedantic about literary, uh, you know, brilliance that I think that that makes it any less necessary and important. Like I, I, I think that in a sense, in spite of so the gigantic plot hole we just said, why do they keep Winston alive, and why don't they just you know vaporize them and erase their memory? Um, because Orwell is telling a truer story, which is about the subjugation mm-hmm. of the human soul, about the 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 uh, about how a regime, uh, how the state can swallow the self, and how wicked that is, and it's. It's an, it's so important because, and it's actually so important that Winston falls. Like that's the way the story had to go. We had to see a man who who has a capacity for greatness of soul fail under the weight, like break under the weight of that. We don't need another hero's journey, right? We don't need another Hunger Games. Like we need to see the state is is big, and mm. and, and it worked. It worked in the 20th century. And, and then he gives us these, like, you know, my daughter, my daughter's really into climbing right now. She's um, at the indoor climbing gym and she's been getting to these like harder and harder levels of climbs in which the, um, like the grips are farther apart and they take more strength to get to. And, and I think that there's, I, I, I think there's some grips in this book to hang on to. Um, again, that idea of cultural memory, of individual memory, of human attachment and love, um, of the belief in God and in transcendence, um, and of a, 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 and having hope in an existing. There's so much hope in the proles that Winston has that O'Brien takes such trouble to break his hope in that, which he wouldn't bother if it wasn't if there wasn't some truth to it, right? And and so we. I would just say, if you're one of the people that isn't scared, good, like go out and be human, right? And, but if you are one of the people who, who is scared, like see those grips on the wall, right? And, and invest in those. We don't need any more posting on Facebook of ideological points of view. We need people to get off Facebook and go like make dinner for their neighbor. Like that's what's going to keep us safe. Right. Yeah, this is what the Lord of the Rings about. Yeah, exactly. And I think in a in a way, even though this is kind of an icon of the fall, it still is inviting us to the same things that Lord of the Rings is saying, like go live in the Shire. And and I think that's really important. And that's what I'm taking from 1984 is not a sense of hopelessness and despair of where we're headed and what's coming at us, but instead just a reminder to like go make dinner for my family and ask some questions and go for a walk. And 
like be more human, not more ideological. Yeah, I think that seems like a decent place to end. Yeah. Unless you want to talk about pickles. You talk about pickles for a minute? Mm-mm. Pickles are so human. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why I thought of pickles. It just <laughs> popped into my head. Pickles and squirrels. Pickles, we can talk about Any other random thoughts? Do you have any final thoughts, David? Other than nope. pickles, squirrels, nope. and dandelions? Or, and or including pickles, squirrels, and dandelions? I've got many thoughts on all three of those. I'll save those for the Q&A, though. Uh, don't forget about the plays, the thing. Uh, and Tim, you've got this conversation on Station Eleven coming up, right? Yep, I am going to record that this week with my friend Josiah. I finished the last episode of Station Eleven. That's important because Station Eleven um, centers on a traveling tribe of Shakespearean actors who are who have survived a pandemic. That's we the got segue. That. We- That's the time. <laughs> We got, well, the first episode of Withy Wendell drops today, April 1st, episode one of season three, featuring the great Kate DiCamillo as the guest. Nice. Uh, so um, check that out. And then uh, we got our Substack bonus content on Anna Karenina. I think the most recent episode, Tim and uh, Brandon LeBlanc, we're uh, holding down the fort. Uh, you guys have been doing a great job with that. So hope if you're... Uh, if you're confused about all those Russian names, hope you're listening to the podcast. Uh, you can check that out at closefreeds.substack.com. But that is all for this week. As I said, next week we will answer your questions. Then we'll dig into a raisin in the sun. Then after that, it's on to Tess of the Durbervilles with a very special guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. And during that period, Tim will be on a hiatus as he prepares to get married. And each week he will send us in a three-hour video a documentary on how that week's planning is going for his wedding. So be on the lookout for that as well. (laughs) Each week, we're going to have a three-hour documentary. It's going to be a documentary series. Uh, He's going to turn the camera on every time they're arguing about uh, some kind of uh, a a plot hole that's happening in the the story of their wedding. Do you remember, Tim, when you said... Scintillating stuff. Do you remember when you said that you... We're planning your wedding one step at a time. <laughs> uh-huh. Like it was uh-huh. like a very wise thing that you thought of yourself. And so now that has become a joke in my house. Like we say oh, it that has. all the time. Like, like time to do. I'll be like, kids, how much homework do you have to do today? What's your plan? And Lucy will be like, don't worry, mom. I'm going to do it one step at a time to Macintosh. <laughs> Lucy's always been my favorite. Always been my favorite. And I think one of the reasons she's my favorite is because she's so insightful. Yeah, because yeah, she's right. so wise. She has a real she recognizes yeah. true wisdom. Wisdom, it, yeah. When it so that's the name of your doctor. Rises up out of the dirt. One step at a time. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, uh, we'll just end there. So for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much. Until next time, happy reading. And be on the lookout for One Step at a Time, the Tam McKintish wedding story. (laughs) Nice. Featuring Galen.